0: When you really understand what's driving the character, what are their fears, what are their hopes, what are their dreams, what do they love, what do they hate? Times bestselling and award-winning author of the kick-ass Vanessa Michael Monroe thrillers and this is the Taylor Stevens show with my good friend Steve Campbell where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time.
1: Taylor when are you going to admit to this new series that you're writing and and weave it into the intro Liar's Paradox (laughs) is the first book you keep talking about the Vanessa Michael Monroe series which is great and we love it but there's this new thing when are you going to start talking about that?
0: I know. I've I've it's been on my mind like at what point do I start changing things because I am still going to write the Monroe stories slowly over time as my wonderful patrons know. But there's something new coming and I it's just not as punchy when you got to start changing it up. <laughs> And that means I got to sit there and think about how to rewrite it. And so I've been... Oh,
1: my gosh. So this isn't going to be one of these things where we have to have, like, multiple revisions to to your intro?
0: You have no idea how much I revise everything. And when I finally have something where I don't have to mess with it anymore, I'm like, oh, thank God.
1: (laughs) So I can see the way this is going to work. Like, a year from now, you're going to do your standard intro, and I'm going to say... And Liars Paradox and, and whatever the name of this new the Jack and Jill thrillers, yeah, whatever the, the probably, name of the series is.
0: Probably I'll have to happen. throw
1: it in because you won't want to take the time <laughs> to to let your message evolve a little bit. Yeah. But I did I did see on Facebook and I have confirmed it in the wild that Liars Paradox is available for pre-order.
0: Yes. Yes it is.
1: Don't sound so excited. <laughs> How long has this been? It hasn't been very long. No, Um, I mean, how long has it been since you've had a book, a new book, (laughs) up on Amazon? Yes, it's
0: been a long time. Um, I'm thinking probably by the time this new book publishes, which I I have a tentative publication date now, but I think by the time this publishes, it'll have been three and a half, almost four years since The Mask. So, yes, I'm excited, but... I've got so much other stuff that's going on at the same time. I'm like trying to get the next book written, but it's already like it's it's out of sight, out of mind. You know, like publication day will roll around and all of a sudden I'll be involved. But until then, I'm just like, let's get this next book written. Let's get this next book written.
1: (laughs) Anyway, it is available. And congratulations, because I know. What a process this has been, and I know how hard you've worked in this whole thing, and you've finally got a new book that is available for purchase, not available for reading yet. It's still going to be a while, but at at least it is available for purchase, so congratulations to you for that.
0: Thank you. I appreciate it.
1: All right. What are we talking about today? I think we have some listener questions.
0: Um, Okay. That's awesome. Where'd they come from?
1: From listeners. You're being very vague, Steve. All right. First question has to do with stereotypical characters. How do we avoid stereotypes when creating characters, especially minor characters?
0: Okay. But do we know who, like, was there any conditions of how this question was asked or who, like, under what circumstances, like, where did it come from?
1: Oh, where did it come from? Let me look, because I, I make notes of these things. This question came from Steve in Florida. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Steve. You know, we Listen. get listener questions all the time, and no one listens to the show more carefully than I do when I'm editing, editing the show. So I, this is like I get to ask these questions. Yeah, no, great. I love your questions. I mean, I at least get to ask the first question.
0: How do we avoid stereotypes when writing characters, um, especially minor characters? Okay, this is actually – there's no pithy answer to this because, in my opinion, so much of what we write is comes from our own knowledge base, right? And so when we write a character a certain way – we don't even know that that's a stereotype, necessarily, unless we've looked around and realized, oh my gosh, I'm, I have a very narrow idea of what this person is like. So you have these really extreme cliches, right, that are almost offensive, but when you take it down a, a level or two, it's just sort of how you yourself have interpreted a person or a gender, an age. It's how you yourself have interpreted it, sort of on a shallow level. And the way that you get past stereotypes is really seeing individuals as people, as individuals versus the shell that that character is in. But when you're stereotyping, you're usually not even aware that you're doing it. So, how do you fix something that you don't know is broken, right? Mm-hmm. So I think the, the, the way, I can't say the only way or the easiest way, I say a way to avoid stereotyping is to get to know your character beyond the surface. When you really understand what's driving the character, what are their fears, what are their hopes, what are their dreams, what do they love, what do they hate, If if you're if you don't know if your character is a dog person or a cat person or a bird person or a snake person, if you don't know if your character loves travel or hates to travel, if you don't know if your character has a great relationship with their parents, horrible, has siblings, doesn't have siblings. If they grew up in the city or the country, if you don't know anything about them, then you're going to stereotype. Because what else do you have a way past that? is to see your characters, to understand your characters from the depth, from the inside out. And then that allows you to provide more to them than just what's on the surface. And when you're just dealing with the surface, then you can't help
1: but stereotype. When you are planning a book, do you, let's say there's a a cop because that's an easy thing to stereotype. Let's say there's a cop that's involved in three different chapters. So it's not a major character, but he or she is is a character and, you know, things may or may not turn based on what he or she does. How much do you put a lot of thought into who that character is before you begin writing or do you put that thought into it when you reach the scene where the cop first shows up
0: it depends on how crucial they are to the story because people in real life make decisions and do things based on their own experience their own bias their own fears wants dreams and so on so if the character has some crucial role in the story, everything that character does has to make sense and be true to who they are as a character, not just because the story needs them to do that thing. It, how much of that shows up on the page also varies because the more you get into describing a character on the page, the faster your story expands out of control. And the, the characters will take on a life of their own. So there's the difference between how much you know about the character as an author versus how much actually shows up on the page. And how much shows on the page is relative to how much the reader actually needs to know for those decisions, choices, conversations, actions to make sense and not feel contrived.
1: Okay, we have another question from steve certainly not we have more (laughs) listeners than just steve is this another question from florida somebody in florida this one they did not sign a name it just came in as wyatt's grandfather
0: (laughs) okay then
1: (laughs) julie's laughing over there on the side that would be wyatt's grandmother
0: what did, what did Wyatt's grandfather
1: have to say? What is a story hook, and why are they important? Oh, that's such a hard question. Oh, my God. Wyatt's grandfather has good questions. <laughs> we should get him on the show sometime. He's, he's kind of old, a little cranky.
0: <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, I've never known Wyatt's grandfather to be cranky. Um, a story hook is basically something that get, gets... The person you the reader, uh, uh, an editor, an agent gets them to interested, hooks them into the story. So it's very brief and it's like it's not quite the same as an elevator pitch, but it could be an elevator pitch, too. So it'd be like, you know, if Harry Potter was a normal kid who whatever and met whatever,
1: there's your story. Right. And I think Wyatt's grandfather was asking about a different kind of a hook. Okay. And I'm not sure because I haven't really spoken to him about it. I'm just kind right, of reading right, between right. the lines in a really poorly formed email with a lot of, lot of typos in it.
0: Okay.
1: But you know, the idea of like something happens in the first chapter that okay. we don't, it, it's like it, it captures your imagination as a reader and you go, hmm, why does she have a knife in her hand? And why is there blood on it if she's working with petunias.
0: Okay. So, yeah, that's totally different kind of... That's not what I would normally think of when somebody says, what's what's the story's hook, right? No,
1: no. Um, this is not the story. That was a poorly phrased question by by Wyatt's grandfather. By
0: Wyatt's grandfather. grandfather. Yes. Yes.
1: But it's more like um, hooks that take place in different parts of the story to keep you engaged and wanting to find out more.
0: Okay, so... um, to me, I don't even know what the formal word for that is, but that's sort of like a sense of story where you you're dropping information along the way to the reader to keep to always keep some kind of conflict, some kind of question going on. So it, even if, say, a chapter resolves a certain issue or a certain conflict or earlier in the story, there's still something else that's unresolved that the reader is trying to get an answer to. So what you just described there is a form of foreshadowing. Mm -hmm. So you're dropping hints and clues to the reader of something that will be explained, something that is yet to come. And why they're important, and they don't have to be bloody, they don't have to be, you know, cliffhangers, because sometimes that can get very tiresome. It just has to be something that raises the question, a question, unresolved question, unresolved conflict, because conflict is what drives the story forward. If there is no conflict, if there's nothing left to be resolved, you don't have any reason to keep reading. You have all your answers already. So that's what they are. And just by the nature of storytelling, you're going to put them in there along the way because why else would we, we? Why else would we keep reading?
1: Is there a general rule for when they should be explained or paid off? Like, if you if you <sighs> drop one in chapter one, should you resolve it by chapter four, and then have something new in chapter three to? keep you That's engaged or
0: just so formulaic
1: yeah. you know it's yeah.
0: not you're looking for a formula aren't you no i'm, I'm just <laughs> I mean, asking why it's
1: grandfather. grandfather is asking these i'm i'm sort of a surrogate for why it's grandfather here
0: right okay um i you know i'm all about formulas when it comes to writing in the sense of hack the craft right mm-hmm. if this then that there's your solution for this particular writing problem But I don't understand formulas for storytelling, because if we followed formulas in storytelling, we'd all be doing the same thing. We'd essentially all be writing the same book. There would be nothing unpredictable anymore. And it would always be, oh, I'm in chapter three. That's what that is. I should expect by chapter seven, as I read this, I'll have my resolution. Then where's the suspense where's the oh my god what's going to happen if, if everybody's following the same patterns
1: i was reading a book over the weekend and there was one of these items that was just sort of dropped in in such a way that you knew it was going to wind up being important and then three or four chapters later there was a problem, and you go, oh, here's how they will solve this. It'll be with this thing that was missing. They're going to find it, and they're going to use this thing to solve this problem. And then they don't. And then a little bit later, there's another problem, and it's like, oh, here's how this, this thing is going to come back into play. And so I was constantly engaged with this thing that was really – it was lost, something that was lost, and it was only lost once. But it kept playing in my mind, when is it going to pop back up and then it never did until I got oh, to the cool. very end of the book, and then there was this really funny resolution for what had happened to it. And it was very satisfying, but the, the loss of this thing helped to drive my interest in trying to solve the mystery. But it only came up that once. It only came up that once. And I mean, you know, they, they would mention it every so often. It's oh, okay, like it and did. we and we still need to find this thing.
0: Okay. But it was okay, never
1: yeah. like, oh, if we find this thing, this will be the solution to the problem. As a reader, I came up with that. Oh, if they find this, then they can sell it and then they'll have the money for this and that'll work. Or oh, if they find this, then they'll be able to give it to that person and then they won't be trying to kill them anymore.
0: That's a very clever use of that technique. Yes. Very clever because the story didn't depend on it no but there was something unresolved that you're waiting to get resolved and so you would keep reading all the way to the end just to get that resolution if nothing else
1: but right? i had completely forgotten about it there would have been the kind of thing that a day later i'd have gone wait a minute what happened to that thing but it it like on you know the in the last chapter it popped back up in in a way that was cute and funny and really clever and provided a really satisfying ending to the book.
0: That's fantastic. There's this, um, I don't remember where I first read about it. It might have been in the Gotham Writers' Workshop book where they, they use the example of, I think they're talking about foreshadowing, and they talk about how in, his, in like the first scene, the father takes a gun, a rifle, and he puts it up on the mantle. And it never comes up again. But the whole time, the reader's waiting to find out, well, what happened to the rifle? But what, what was that all about? And I don't even remember the, the point they were making, the lesson of that. But my takeaway now, having written as often as, as much as I have, is you don't want to foreshadow things unless you're going to follow through on them. Like if you introduce elements, curious elements like that, there's got to be some resolution to it. There's got to be some reason for it. Because as readers, we're constantly seeking to tie up those loose ends. We, we need that sense of completion. And if a story doesn't leave you complete, and there's things that, like, wait a minute. And, and you know, last, last week we were talking about the whole editorial copy editing process or whatever. That's the type of stuff that often gets caught in there. Because when you're writing, you might come up with this really clever idea and go, oh, okay. And you, you throw it out there, and then you forget about it. And it's just like this dangling thread that doesn't really belong. You thought you were going to do something with it, but you didn't. And it worked really well in the moment, but it doesn't tie the story together. And that can be super problematic for story, the whole entire story. And so if you're going to throw something in there as an enticement or whatever, you better make sure that it has a reason for being there and the readers aren't left hating because even if... Uh, hanging because even if the whole story is awesome, and everything else is resolved, but that one thing is not is is left dangling. They are going to hate you. That's all they're going to remember is how you never told them the answer to that one thing and left them hanging.
1: Okay, we have one last question, and this is it. Just came in from an anonymous email account, totally uh-huh. secure. I have no idea who sent this question in.
0: Uh huh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and the question is about research. Okay. Do you do all of your research before you begin writing? And if the answer to that is no, if you're writing away and you you come across something that needs to be researched, do you have a way of keeping yourself from going down the rabbit hole so that you can get back to writing? Or do you maybe even just, like, fudge it and figure I'll figure it out later? I'll do the research later because I'm in a writing Frenzy right now.
0: Well, uh, you know that saying, "Do as I say, and not as I do." (laughs) (laughs) Yes. What do you say? (laughs) Um, When I'm really trying to behave, uh, first of all, the first part of the question. No, I don't do all my. Is it research or research? Uh, I've been pronouncing it wrong my whole life, apparently. Um, I don't do all of that before. I set down to writing. I have a sense of things. And for me, uh, place for me to uh, description, right? Mm-hmm. Description and character movement go hand in hand. And so it's really hard for me to show a character doing something. If I don't know what that character is doing it to or on or with. So The biggest stumbling block for me in writing is knowing what a place looks like, how it's laid out, whether it's a building or a city, whatever it is. But that can be a rabbit hole of never having enough information. So what I will sometimes do is placeholder it. There are some scenes that I just just absolutely can't write it without knowing what that Street looks like or with knowing what what the thing is. So I will have to stop to go get that visual and figure it out. But for things that I just don't know, is it how does that thing actually work? Does do you lift it up and then open it? Whatever. I will just put brackets and say, describe here and I'll keep on writing and, and write sort of around that. And I'm kind of blocking out the scene to get a sense of the the character interaction and motivation and all of that. And then when I am not in that flow of trying to get my words, I'll go look it up and get a sense of how to answer that question. So I could go through a scene and come back and there's just like all these brackets all over the place. I'm like, oh, okay, time to go do some Googling here. Um, the, I've, I've taken to um, writing on a computer that does not have internet access. And so in order to access the internet during those times when I am hardcore into writing, I either have to turn the other computer on, which is deliberate, or be on my phone. And my phone is a lousy, a lousy replacement for the computer. It just mm-hmm. Phones never work as fast. Um, they, the screens are small. You get the mobile sites. I hate it. So that limits me from being able to actually just go look up. And, but anything that I desperately need to look up, how do you spell this? What's a synonym for this word? What's this? I can do that on my phone. And so that is one of the tools I I use to like actually make it harder for me to procrastinate. And it does help. But ultimately if I had the answer to that solution to that problem i could bottle it sell it and quit writing
1: (laughs) all right well let me ask a specific question because this anonymous i don't know this anonymous person how much of of your stuff he's read but i think it was the vessel where there was the stingray yes and so how did you do because that played sort of an integral role in in the story is that something that you fully researched ahead of time that wasn't even research it was just knowledge because
0: i read a lot of news and i follow these different um issues because they fascinate me and i don't know it's a chicken and egg thing do they fascinate me because the characters i write or do my are my characters informed by the things that fascinate me i don't know But I knew about stingrays and dirt boxes long before I ever wrote The Vessel. And so when the story is in play, I'm like, that would be a really good plot device. I almost didn't, I mean, I might have had to look up one thing to make sure this was accurate for the technical details or whatnot, but it didn't really need to. But the problem is technology is a moving target. So like in Liar's Paradox... They um, there's it talks about a black phone. And when I first started writing Liar's Paradox, black phone was like top-of-the-line security, secure phone, you know. I mean, it was like a big deal. And then the company quit making them. And now you can only find them on the secondary market. That kind of really put a crimp in like several chapters worth of material. I was like, <laughs> well, crap. Um, so sometimes you can know about things from... And then and then they're not there anymore. And sometimes, you know, about things and then they are improved and they they can be capable of so much more. So in that case, you kind of have to keep yourself updated. But there's just so much that I'm aware of on a um, I don't want to say surface level. It's a little deeper than surface, but I'm not an expert in either. Just from being fascinated by how the world works and what's going on in the world that. I'm not sitting there going, "Well, let me figure out what could be used for this particular situation." It's like I already know it can be used. Now let me write a situation around it.
1: I, I hope that satisfies our anonymous uh, emailer. I, yeah, I know it satisfies me. I, oh, yes. well,
0: okay. That then I'll take I'll take you as a surrogate for <laughs> Wyatt's grandfather and Steve in Florida and, and the emailer. <laughs>
1: All right, and one thing I happen to know is that all three of those people, even the anonymous guy who's just so privacy, his, his bent is he's so private about everything that he doesn't want people to even know who he is, all of them are patrons of yours on your Patreon page. And this show is sponsored by your patrons. And that's a place where we can go – I am as well a patron, not just in Florida and my <laughs> grandfather and the anonymous guy. We can all gather to support you and the work that you're doing on Patreon, and we get the Hack the Craft videos and lots of other things that you do there. So I would encourage everybody that's listening to consider visiting the page which is patreon.com slash taylor stevens if you're not a patron consider becoming a patron if nothing else just check it out because we put a lot of the videos for the things that we do uh on the podcast the hack the craft things uh, specifically on the on the site those are available for everyone you don't have to be a patron but there's a lot of other good stuff including the monroe uh the next monroe book that you're releasing a little bit at a time as you're writing and polishing it so i would encourage everyone to go to patreon.com slash taylor stevens and check that out
0: thank you i really appreciate that
1: all right so that is this week's show we will be back again when taylor Well, hopefully next week. Hopefully sound positive. Come on.
0: (laughs) Well, you're asking. So like, are we going to be back? I don't know. We are going to to be back next
1: week. (laughs) You don't have to do copy edits again, do you?
0: No, no, I don't.
1: All right. We will be back again next week. Thanks for listening.
0: We'll see you guys next week.